Hello, friends. Welcome to the podcast. So today's movie was uh, the 2008 film Defiance. So before we get into the film itself, if you haven't seen it, stop the podcast, go find it. Um, I think I actually, I, I technically own it from Amazon. Um, I'm not entirely sure where you can watch it for free. I'm sure if you checked YouTube and stuff like that, um, you'd be able to find it. It's um, essentially, uh, I believe it's Daniel Craig's in it. So you'd have to look up for the one that has him in it. But uh, before we get into the movie, I wanted to do, delve into a little bit of history. Because this does have to deal with the Holocaust and World War II. And as you heard in the last episode, we had talked about the Isle of Crete and, uh, you know, that murderous Nazi fuckface Hitler. Um, so I wanted to give a bit of a history um, as to what was going on. Um, most people know of the Holocaust. I feel like a lot of people don't know in depth about the Holocaust. Um, being Jewish, I happen to know a lot about the Holocaust. Um, it's something that we definitely don't ever forget or lose sight of. Um, I've met Holocaust survivors, um, both survivors who were in the concentration camps and those who actually fought um, in World War II. And I think it's definitely a different feel when it's sort of part of your history. And it doesn't matter sort of how far ahead that goes. Um, you're, you're always going to remember it. So it was the, the term Holocaust um, is actually what not what Jewish people call it. Um, it's actually called the Shoah. So that means calamity, like destruction. Um, that's like the standard Hebrew term for what happened. Um, Holocaust is kind of like what everyone else calls it. Um, and it kind of became like standard practice in like 1940, 1941, that um, a lot of uh, Jewish people uh, would refer to the, the time prior to the Holocaust as literally um, before the Holocaust. And it's generally thought of as um, the genocide of European Jews by Nazi Germany. So, you know, I think what bothers me the most um, is sort of when you see these parallels that happen in modern times and you see the, this sort of fascist type regime thing happen and you're like, fuck. Because there's many people who are just like, well, there were so many Jews, why didn't they fight back? And I think sometimes things happen sort of incrementally that you don't realize that the shit has officially hit the fan until you're literally in it. And one, we're not victim blaming here. So the Nazis were murderous fuckfaces, and that's the way it is. And to this day, Nazis are still fuckfaces. So again, not victim shaming ever. Um, so one of the things that everyone does talk about in the Holocaust is the concentration camps. 
you know, Hitler got into power in 1933 on this sort of like, let's save the economy, bullshit, blah, 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 blah. And then it just turned into how he blamed the Jews for everything, for the reason why your business wasn't doing well, the reason why you weren't getting ahead. And if that doesn't sound familiar, I don't know what to tell you. Because there's always some scapegoat somewhere for why your life is not better than it should be. Um, so he basically got into power, um, in 1933 and started all these sort of restrictions on, um, sort of the economic and social rights and legal rights of Jews. Um, so I know, and there's so many things that people don't know of, um, you know, and there was so many times when things were done prior to actual World War II that people aren't really aware of, like the sterilization programs. Basically, um, there was this, I don't know, this like article that was in the New York Times that said 400,000 Germans to be, you know, sterilized and all this other stuff about hereditary diseased offspring. And, um, so in 1939, uh, murderous fuckface decided to, uh, sign what's called a euthanasia decree. Um, and basically it was, um, mainly directed in, at adults, but the euthanasia of children was also carried out. So, between 1939 and 1941, between like 80 and 100,000 mentally ill adults in institutions were killed, um, as were 5,000 children and 1,000 Jews who were also in institutions. Um, there was also sort of these dedicated uh, killing areas, killing centers, um, where the deaths at those centers were like at like 20, 30,000, right? Um, but I mean, there's, there's lots of different numbers floating around. Some people say, um, it, it could be up to 400,000, but I guess the general consensus is it's about 150,000 mentally and physically disabled people were murdered by this fuckface. Um, and so he started with that, you know, that's not something a lot of people know about prior to the actual, um, you know, World War II stories that you hear about. Um, in 35, they passed the uh, Reich Citizenship Law and the Law for Protection of German Blood and German Honor, known as the Nuremberg Laws. Um, it basically said only German or kindred blood um, could be recognized as citizen. So anybody who had three or more like Jewish grandparents was classified uh, as a criminal they weren't allowed to employ uh, German women under 45 in the age of their home, I'm assuming because um, they didn't want them to possibly get pregnant. Um, so get to end of like 1934, a bunch of German Jews had left Germany. And that's the other thing you have to understand. Don't look at the Jews that are in Europe as being um, some sort of outside immigrants or something like that. Um, I am an American. 
I am also Jewish. Um, that's part of my heritage. But I'm still an American. So these were still Germans. These German Jews that they were exterminating were their, were their own people. It's just they found some sort of sick, dumbass reason to do this. So, um, you know, there's so many stories and I could go on and on and on, but you know, it, it would have to be, it would have to be like a mini series, but, um, before World War II happened, German had really, Germany had really thought about like mass deportation, um, for anyone of Jewish descent, um, you know, and they, they considered sending them to British Palestine or French Madagascar, Siberia, um, uh, and two reservations like in Poland. Um, so he decides he's going to, um, invade Poland and do whatever it is that he does. Please remember that the United States did not jump on the ball here and help out. They were just like, oh, they're killing Jews. That's fine. Um, so in Poland, a lot of really um, terrible things happened where, you know, like Jews were murdered in the streets and women were raped and um, people were killed in mass shootings and there was extermination camps. And then um, they tried to, um, they invaded Norway and Denmark and um, the Jews were banned from certain occupations and they had to register their property with the government. And, um, and a lot of the times, especially in uh, Norway and Denmark, um, they would be taken out of their homes and put on a ship and then sent to Auschwitz. Um, there was a, a time when they also invaded Yugoslavia and Greece, and that kind of leads back to the Isle of Crete. Um, they tried to invade um, the Soviet Union, and a lot of Jews who were living in ghettos, which is essentially where they would just put them in these really shitty neighborhoods um, without their stuff, and say, oh, you're going to live here and you're going to, you're going to work and blah, blah, blah. Really, it was just sort of a, a, a waiting station for them to be shipped to these concentration camps. So they, they, a lot of Jews really sort of believe the lie that, um, they were just going to work for them and that the war would be over someday and then they'd be free. And that was not the case. We all know that. We all know that, um, tons and tons of Jewish people, uh, disabled people, um, homosexuals, anyone they considered to be deviant were killed in these, um, concentration camps. So, and the one we always hear of is Auschwitz, but there's, there's, and, and that one's attributed to about a million deaths. Uh, Belzec is like 600,000, Kemlo is like 320,000, so on and so forth. So in total, the concentration camp deaths alone are over 3 million. Um, and we all heard about the gas chambers and blah, blah, blah. What we don't really hear about is the Jewish resistance. Um, there was almost no resistance in the ghettos of Poland until about 1942. Um, 
you know, I think there was this sort of feel of um, persecution. Jewish people have in their identity that we're sort of God's chosen, but we're also going to be tested constantly. Um, and that sort of like, this will pass too, you know? And, um, you know, but there were a lot of uh, resistance groups or reforms. So there was like the Jewish military union, the Jewish combat organization, um, and that, that was in the Warsaw uh, ghetto, uh, the United Partisan Organization, um, things like that. And they essentially would um, attempt to sort of throw the Nazis off their game by attacking railroads, blowing up, you know, rail lines and um, sort of doing a bunch of sneak attacks and so on and so forth. So one of the things uh, this movie, Defiance, uh, sort of brings up is that Jewish resistance. So Defiance is a 2008 movie. And it basically um, follows around these brothers, the the Belsky partisans, um, well, the Belsky brothers. So this is actually based on a true story. Now, the movie itself does not, does not um, have all the truths in it. And we'll get into that. But essentially takes place August 1941, you know, uh, murderous fuckfaces are going through Eastern Europe, killing European Jews, um, anyone who doesn't survive, they're going to the ghettos, so on and so forth. So we're going to go over what happened in the movie, but then we're going to sort of go into what actually happened with the Belsky brothers in real life, because of course the movie has to have some kind of flow to it. It's a bit romanticized, so on and so forth. So. It starts off with um, the brothers' names are Tuya, Zeus, Azale, and Aaron. Um, their parents die. They're killed by the local, like, whatever. I don't know what they're called. They're like they're like Germans, but they're not SS. Um, they're dickheads. They basically turn on their neighbors. Um, so they basically run into the forest and. They find their brother Aaron sort of hiding under, I guess the parents must have hid him under the floorboards. He's under there and he's like, oh, he's a little kid. I, I think in real life he was 16. I feel like in that movie he looked very, very young. And, but anyway, he's under the floorboards holding a knife, ready to just lash out. <clears throat> and um, so they run off into the woods. I guess the premise is, is that they always sort of engaged in shady stuff. So they were kind of used to running off into the woods to hide. And that's where they lived. The, the forest that they were hiding out in is a place that they went to a lot. So they knew it very, very well. <laughs> and um, they, while they're in there, they find other Jews who had escaped hiding in the forest and decide to um, take them in and and help them hide. Um, so over the next year or two, um, they basically go and raid like local farms and 
they move their camp whenever they're discovered and they start staging all these like raids on Germans because the one thing also is that Jews weren't really allowed to own a lot of guns and so when the movie starts basically the one brother um, Zeus has like a shotgun and they have to go borrow a gun from a neighbor in order to um, go kill the guy who killed their parents so you know he Tuvia who's really the focus of this um, is really trying to sort of save people. And there's a lot of sort of sibling rivalry between him and Zeus. Um, the winters are very hard. They're living out there. Interesting uh, sort of fact is that, and I had to look this up, I did read the book years and years ago. Um, and it was nothing like the movie. <clears throat> Excuse me. It sort of it reads kind of like a history book, and that's fine. I actually do believe the guy who wrote the book mostly used um, Aaron, uh, who I believe is the youngest brother, as a reference because he's still alive. And um, he tried to sort of downplay his part in all of it, but they said that he was actually, for being a 16-year-old kid, was extremely, extremely helpful. Um, and I think at that point, when even when you're that young, you're and you're you're living through all that stuff, you're you're pretty grown. Um, so they go through winters, starvation, uh, a massive amount of sickness. Um, you have to realize that when you're living close quarters like that, and your immune system is down, you're going to get things like typhoid and um, other diseases of just sort of being locked in together. So essentially. Um, you know, they, the brothers end up having this big tiff. Zeus decides that they're not doing enough to, you know, uh, stop the Germans. And Tuvia is just like, we have to keep these people alive. Zeus goes off and joins the Russian front because Russia was on the side of, of um, the Jews and the allies at that time. And, um, Basically, they sort of come to this agreement that the Russians will protect the camp because the camp supplies them with stuff and gives them information and so on and so forth. Um, it's a very, very hard-hitting movie in the sense that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of action in it, and it's like it's one of those movies where you're watching it and you're like, "Shit, can they just not catch a break?" And that's actually that's the, that's that's no the Jews cannot catch a break um you know and essentially it's all about them having to basically I guess the Germans had figured out where they were they were becoming a problem um and at that point they had hundreds upon hundreds of people so in all in all in real life um the Belsky brothers actually saved over 1200 Jews in the forest um having to move from place to place they are attributed with and i believe this this is a beautiful way of looking at it um the descendants of those 1200 people number in the 10 thousands so they are 
they are sort of thanked by those families as being the reason that their families um, survived. So basically there's this whole thing where they have to cross a march, marsh and you know, people are dying left and right. There is a, a lot of sort of beautiful interactions between different types of Jews. So back to a little bit of history away from the, the movie, you know, in general, especially in old world sort of Jewry, um, you had like Orthodox, ultra Orthodox, um, Hasids, things like that. And then you just had people who were like kind of secular Jews. I mean, to be honest, it's kind of the way it is now. There is a lot more variations of Jewry in the United States than there are in the rest of the world. Reform Jews, um, conservative Jews, Orthodox, ultra-Orthodox, so on and so forth. Um, what you find is there's this weird interaction between people who are considered sort of like educated, uppity Jewish people versus like the lower class sort of farmhand Jews having to deal with each other, having to interact um, in a way that they never did before. And one of the things that Seuss had said to his brother was like, I can't believe you want to help these people, meaning like the uppity Jews. He's like, these people would lock their daughters away from us. And it's sort of getting over those things. Um, but what's really, really um, telling about this is the way that they survived. So one, they were farmers and so on and so forth in the movie. Um, Tuvia had come back from, I guess he had married a rich woman and he had run a store with her, which I believe is true in real life. Um, and in real life, she did not want to go with him. And in real life, she did die. Um, and so he was kind of considered one of those uppity Jewish people for a little bit. But I mean, granted, he came from essentially a family of, of Millers. Um, and What's interesting is how they survived. So when you watch the movie, you'll see that there's a, the way they build their um, like forest houses is they essentially do dugouts, which a dugout um, is when you literally dig into the earth and then put posts in and then build on those posts. And that actually helps regulate the temperature. So below ground, um, the temperature can't get below like 55 degrees. So it's much easier to heat in the winter. I mean, you're talking about a place, I mean, they were in Eastern Europe. Um, and they, I believe they shot this though in Yugoslavia. So actually where they shot it, interesting point. If you watch it on Amazon Prime, like I said, you get those little tidbits on the side. If you like hover over the screen, if you're watching on a, a laptop. Um, they actually used one of the living museums that was within a hundred miles of where their original camp was as part of the scenes. Um, they had to actually use special wallpaper and things like that as to not get any blood or things on there from um, shooting. And um, so they were living in these sort of dugouts. Um, they basically had to raid food or get food from people um, willingly, which was not an easy thing to do because if you're found to be helping um, Jewish criminals, then you are too 
a uh, a criminal. And one of the the guys that helped them by giving him a gun and telling him who killed his parents, they ended up coming over and and, and hanging him. And uh, the brothers actually showed up and, and buried him, and so on and so forth. So I'm not entirely sure if that's exactly what happened um, in real life, but uh, let's talk a little bit about Tuvia. So yeah, let's talk about Tuvia a little bit. So Tuvia, um, the Belskis had grown up, they were the only Jewish family in the town that they lived in. Um, it's It was a small village, um, which was Eastern Poland then, and now is uh, Belarus. So he was, his parents' name were David, and I believe it's Bella, they had 12 kids. 10 boys, two girls. So Tuvia was the third oldest. Um, and Zeus, which is at, his name was actually Alexander, Azale and Aaron, or Aran, were the ones that became part of his, his group. So a little background on Tuvia. During World War I, he actually served as an interpreter for the Imperial German Army. Um, he already spoke Yiddish. He learned the German language from his, you know, his service. And in then he was recruited into the Polish army. He actually became a corporal. Uh, after he was done with his military um, stint, he went back home. He basically uh, was trying to make his family more money, so he opened up another mill. Um, and so he got married to a much older woman named Rifka, who owned a general store and a large house, and they lived sort of nearby. When the Soviets, um, during the Soviet occupation, I should say, uh, in 39, he got really freaked out and was like, I'm going to end up being arrested um, because of my occupation. Um, so he wanted to move to another town uh, named uh, Lida. He tried to convince his wife to join him. She refused. Um, he had um, actually met another woman um, named Sonia. And in 39, he actually divorced his wife, Rivka, and married Sonia. Um, and what's weird is that in the movie itself, it talked about that Rivka had just died. Like they, they left out the whole thing where he sort of left his wife and then had an affair and then divorced her. Cause you know, I mean, I guess it wouldn't look good. Um, but what's even a little bit um, creepier and not to take anything from Tuvia, but he had married a, um, I'm sorry, Sonia, who we had the affair with, was killed while taking shelter um, during one of the raids. So not long after that, Tuvia married uh, Lilka, which is in the movie. Um, what they don't tell you is she was only 17 at the time. But also what they don't tell you is that she was his step-niece from his prior marriage. So the reason they knew each other before was because 
not they were related, but like they were related. So just a little tidbit. When Operation Barbarossa broke out, the brothers were called up um, by their prospective army units to go fight. And then there was this crazy firefight and the the commander basically said, you're on your own to these boys um, after they had already fled into the woods. Um, But in that time, people were being moved into ghettos. So their parents, two of their brothers, um, including uh, Rivka and Zeus's wife and child, were killed um, in the ghetto on December 8th, uh, 1941. So even though they were always pretty much hunted by the Nazis, their numbers kept growing because people were hearing about them and so they were sending people. Um, People were escaping the ghettos um, because they started to learn at that point that even though um, the uh, Nazis had said, oh, it's going to get better, you're going to go soon, blah, 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 they realized more and more people were dying and more people were disappearing. Um, His biggest thing um, as the leader here was he did not want to engage in these sort of skirmishes um, that he thought would be sort of negligible in terms of helping um the cause he is his only thought was to save as many people as possible so in that time over like two years of living in the forest they actually built a school a hospital and a nursery um they didn't try to go out and attack Nazis unless they knew it meant that they were saving Jewish lives. Um, and then after the war, um, Azel, Aziel, um, was constricted. You know, he, he joined the Soviet army and was killed in a, a battle in Germany. So they do get into the, like the epilogue of the movie. They talk about how the brothers ended up in New York city ran a small trucking for, uh, firm, um, you know, and uh, he stayed with Lilka uh, for the rest of their lives. I think it was like 40-something years. They had three kids. Um, they had a son, Michael, a son, Robert, a daughter named Ruth, 10 grandchildren. Um, there is a documentary that uh, the granddaughter, one of the granddaughters had made. Um, so when he like died in 1987, he was basically poor as dirt. Um, he was originally buried out on Long Island, um, but then a year later, his body was exhumed and taken back to Jerusalem, where he was given a state funeral with um, full honors. And so, I mean, there is a lot of there's a lot of things they left out. But what I think we can take from this movie um, is um, how they survived. So one, we've already discussed how sometimes there's just certain generations that are infinitely, infinitely better than we are. 
uh, my grandparents' generation, this generation, uh, definitely is one of those where they worked very hard. They were used to it. Um, you know, it was one of those things where it was like, well, it's tough, but we can get through it. I think sometimes people nowadays, the mentality of it is, you know, we just get very sort of sad and it's easy. Look, we are going through some weird shit right now. We're going through some weird, weird stuff. And it's like every day there is literally some other bullshit. And I think sometimes the fact that we do have a lot of information sort of at our fingers all the time, at our fingertips, uh, that we can turn on the news and it's 24-7 and, you know, it, it can be extremely overwhelming. Um, we're dealing with diseases we haven't dealt with in a really long time. You know, cue up the, the monkeypox and the new um, typhoid thing that's going to pop off soon. And, oh, and there was the other one, scarlet fever. That I just read an article on that. Um, it, it's a lot, but they were a different type of people. One of the main things I saw was when the, in the movie, when the brothers first left, um, and it was just, uh, Zeus, Aaron, and, uh, Aziel. One of the first things he did grab besides his gun, um, and some food was he grabbed a saw and that was because they knew they would have to be building something. You know, I think sometimes people think of apocalypse survival and they're like, oh, I'm just going to live in a lean-to or, you know, a tent. And they knew. They knew what the winters were like. Um, and they knew the area, which I don't think a lot of people know now. Um, so I think what we're going to sort of focus on is a couple of things. One knowing the area that is around you. If you happen to live in a city and, you know, um, there isn't a lot of woods or places to hide, maybe just knowing the area in general. Um, I live in a city and there happens to be a lot of woods nearby. It's just one of those conservation things. And we spend a lot of time there. I think that's important for a lot of things. For knowing where I'd have to run to if I had to, or foraging, things like that. Um, the other thing is really understanding that um, being cold or being hot, um, you need to understand what you need to do for your body to survive. You can't outthink, you know, hypothermia. So you have to think of a way. And they knew that when they left, when they took the things they needed to take to actually build something. You see the first like shot of it, they're just like sitting in the rain, they have nothing covering them, to them literally building these massive dugouts um, and building platform beds and things like that uh, just from their surroundings. Um, one of the things that I took from the last book that I had read uh, from the last podcast was when I was listening to Phil Maffetone, which, I mean, unless you're really into holistic type stuff, I don't know if you're going to get a lot from it. I do. Some of it I take with a grain of salt, um, you know, but one of the things he had said, he was actually on a podcast recently for, um, Trail Runner Nation and he had talked about strength training and how people go into the gyms and they start like, lifting weights and blah, blah, blah. And they do this whole routine and 
Um, then the next day they're sore. And he's like, do you know why you're sore? He's like, because you've hurt yourself. He's like, that's not real world strength. So what he does is he keeps a, a like a massive dumbbell. You know what I mean? Like somewhere that he has to walk by. And every so often he goes up to it and he does a bunch of squats with it. Or he'll do farmer's walks where you have two dumbbells and you walk around the house for a few minutes. Um, so I've started doing that. On the days that I'm supposed to strength train, um, I literally have my kettlebells sort of sitting out in the living room. I will do a little bit of work, get up, do 10 kettlebell swings. Go back, do a little bit of work, do some housework, do whatever I'm doing. Maybe 15, 20 minutes later, I'll do 10 more. I have found that I am not sore anymore, but I am a lot stronger. And that's the difference when, you know, it's easy to say, oh, you could just go ahead and, and do like an hour long um, weightlifting routine three or four times a week. Listen, the Belskis didn't do any of that shit, but they were strong as fuck and they were smart. And I think sometimes we need to sort of get back to that. Um, I highly recommend hiking in your local areas and not just doing it once or twice, do it to where you know everything. Um, learning the local fauna and flora, super important. Um, knowing how to navigate. But more importantly is the ability to walk long amounts of time. They spent more time hiking and walking than anything else. Um, and building things. And But they were sort of used to that work because they lived very physical lives. So in terms of apocalypse fitness, you know, I would say get yourself a pretty decent weight. I like kettlebells. I don't think you can go wrong with a kettlebell. And I, and you know, you want it to be somewhat heavy. I have 15 pounders and I like that amount. Um, you know, you don't want to get into those little wussy little ones that I, I don't know what the fuck those are good for. I really don't. And leave it somewhere where you have to walk past it numerous times a day and say, every time I have to walk past this, I'm going to go ahead and do 10 swings. I'm going to do uh, 15 goblet squats. Then I'm going to go mop the floor and then I'm going to go do work and I'm going to do this and the other and then walk past it again and say, I'm going to do lunges. What you're going to find is that you're less sore throughout the day. Um, and you're going to be able to do more because my biggest thing is I want to be able to run and walk on a daily basis. And I don't want to be overly sore for no reason. Um, and if you work, like if you're, if you're, if you're one of those people that literally physically has to go to an office or maybe you, um, work in nursing or God love you. If you do, I don't even know what to do for you, but I would say, honestly, if you could sneak in a, a, a dumbbell into your office or like the elastic bands, I used to do that when I worked at an office, I had a whole bunch of elastic bands and I would do like, um, little exercises where I would do overhand overhead sort of pulls. I would do bicep curls. I would do like little leg lifts with my, with the band attached to the leg of my, my chair or my desk, just do those little things throughout the day. I think the most important thing here in terms of their fitness was that they had a really good baseline and you have to sort of start somewhere. So how to survive this one, you need a community. And I think that's a lot 
that's hard for a lot of people who think of apocalypse type things. They want to think of themselves as a lone wolf. You'll never survive on your own. These people built a community. So much that they had a hospital, a nursery, and a school. We need other people. So first and foremost, for your mental fitness, you need to have friends and loved ones that you can really rely on, that really rely on you. Secondly, you need to build up your cardio in terms of walking and hiking. Thirdly, get yourself something heavy, and like the commercial says, I pick up stuff and I put it down, whatever that guy used to say. Go throughout the day. You don't need to make a huge amount of time for this. Um, you just need to do little bits every single day. And uh, also, if you notice that your government is heading towards some kind of fascist bullshit, do something about it because um, Americans really could have saved lives if they would have stepped in a lot earlier. And know what's going on politically, know what's going on locally. You want to be on the up and up and knowing what your local uh, government is doing. So that way you kind of have a heads up if anything's going to go down. Um, but yeah, get something heavy, put it in the living room. When you walk past it, do some squats. And, you know, focus on those large muscles. Kettlebell swings are great. That's full body. Squats, full body. Lunges, or not full body. <laughs> squats, whole legs, you know. Lunges legs. Um, do some bent over rows at your whole back. You know, do things like that every so often. Um, and don't make it such a big deal, but do something. But yes, go for a hike, go for a walk, lift up something heavy. Um, get to know the people in your life better so you can rely on them. And give yourself a sense of community. Stay safe, everyone. Find a Find the podcast, uh, Facebook page, the website, um, all of my information's on there. And um, try not to uh, contract any of the fucking plagues that we have going on. Seriously, wear a mask, wipe down stuff. Um, I don't know jack shit about monkeypox. Um, it just sounds like something that um, I would need a disinfectant wipe for. And stay safe. Don't touch your eyes or mouth or whatever. And uh, just love each other. Take care.